build business with passion and let data tell your story. If you are a founder having difficulties handling investors' curveball questions, or an investor wondering how to find the next golden startup deal, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Parul, your host for this episode of the Dudash Investability Podcast. So, in India, we have a tradition, and today we have uh, Indian guests. So, I would rather start with the guests and then. Uh, come back to me so i'll start with you radhika please go ahead introduce yourself tell us about something about yourself yeah sounds good thanks i think first of all thanks for having uh, thanks for having us today um and really learning about judash is very beginning uh, so i'm radhika i work for the investment team of uh, a fund called bloom ventures which is one of india's leading early stage venture funds um so we're a, we're a tech investor sector agnostic totally um make investments anywhere from about 500k to about 2 million or so in our first year uh, at bloom medical organs consumers so education healthcare um hr e-commerce or as i like to put it things that don't need an engineering degree so fully understand um before bloom spent a couple of years in a couple of different countries doing a combination of consulting finance uh lots of confusing things when finally found my calling at bloom and moved back in baggage across the world to join so that's uh, that's what me thank you thank you radhika jitesh we would love to hear something from you thanks thanks nikhil nikhil thanks for having radhika uh, and i here um just just to add to what radhika was saying um bloom's been in existence for about 10 years so we're actually celebrating our 10th year um currently and uh, you know it's been it's been it's been a fun journey uh, i don't have a as colorful cross country um background as radhika's is but um, broadly speaking you know uh, here at bloom i work on the platform team so my main role in fact starts after the investment um we believe in really going deep uh, and helping out our founders uh, with may more way more than just capital um how i landed up here is is a is a funny story i used to work at one of bloom's portfolio companies uh, leading sales and uh, it so happened that we just sort of did a did a reverse poach uh, of sorts um i landed up here through multiple things i've been a founder before uh, uh, ran my own saas company for about 3 years uh, which got acquired and just continued uh, working in the ecosystem post that um and and that's that's broadly how it's been um, specifically i think um, i'm a weird and massive obsession around aviation and planes um which is often at least internally in the team uh, made fun of in in a good way uh and radhika is avoiding not to smile about that but um yeah and and uh just just uh, as you know as as a person i'm just always happy to help um you know help founders help anyone uh, in general try and you know spread good karma as we go along um and it's been a pleasure um, obviously uh, getting to know uh, you nikhil and the dudash team and excited to be here thank you so much thank you <clears throat> so i'll i'll just take this opportunity to quickly introduce myself i'm a i've been a serial entrepreneur and then i turned to investing that's what most of the entrepreneurs do after a few exits and uh, post my exits we set up a family office which started investing in a lot of startups as well as one of the asset class and um, then uh, 
we recognized, I recognized that, uh, you know, there's so much of an information asymmetry. There's so much of problems with the founders. They don't exactly know what investors are looking for. And then they typically resort to what I call as just pray and pray and hope that magic happens. And suddenly this, they find themselves that there's no nobody backing them. So that led me to kind of, you know, uh, get back into entrepreneurial space. And uh, Dudash is essentially the result of that. Dudash, as I said, is an AI-driven platform. I think Michael already introduced AI-driven data platform, which guides founders through every step of the way in terms of what are the trust assets they need to put together for them to uh, be able to seen to be seen favorably by investors like Jitesh and uh, Radhika here. So with the, with that, if with your permission, uh, I would uh, set the ball rolling. Is that all right? Sounds good. That's yeah. good. All right. So um, one thing which I would request the entire audience is keep the questions coming. I'm going to take those questions up and uh, ask Radhika and uh, Jitesh on your behalf. And with that, Radhika, my first question is, is to you. Uh, what exactly, what is the funniest pitch you've heard so far? I, I mean, before, before that, you know, I would rather ask you what exactly Bloom Venture does, maybe go a bit deeper into that and then we yeah. go ahead and I'll start asking you a couple of other questions mm -hmm. around uh, the funniest pitches and so on, which I kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, as as Jadesh uh, and I started with, so as mentioned, Bloom's an early stage investor. So that means is we usually invest in companies when they're fairly early on, just at, just before, just after PMF is uh, broadly where we like to come in. Um, at Bloom, we have a, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to copy Jadesh's line. I'm sorry, I didn't want to steal this from you. But uh, today he said this to me, where an investor is like a partner. Um, or a friend more than uh, someone who comes and sits on your board. So I think there's a lot of hand-holding that goes into uh, any um, founder relationship that you have, um, especially ones that you come and invest in. So um, at Bloom, we've built out a very, very strong platform team. Uh, Jadesh, of course, is uh, one of the shining stars of that team, where you kind of help founders with anything to do with marketing, business development, uh, further fundraising. Um, HR, uh, hiring needs, etc., um, and and have a strong belief that so much of your founder journey is driven by you learning at almost every stage, every six months. You're effectively leading a company that looks very different, a new company effectively. So as a CEO, as a founder, you need to constantly be evolving as well. Your L1s need to constantly be evolving as well. So building out that entire learning practice um, is is how we help in, uh, founders if we investigate. So that's more about um, what we do once we've invested in the company. Um, before investing, where, where your question around pitch came from, so yeah, we've uh, we meet about two to three thousand startups or so a year. Uh, invest in maybe about eight a year. So you can do the math around what that um, you know the universities would call an acceptance rate uh, would uh, looks like. And uh, honestly, that part of my job is probably one of my favorite parts of my job. Just meeting so many different. Uh, kinds of companies every single day, every single week. Um, they span across different sectors. 
uh, very often span across different geographies, even though we're India focused, you have found us sitting in different parts of the world and trying to solve problems in India. Um, and, and yeah, that, that kind of covers the overview of what we do from both the pipeline perspective and uh, once we've invested in the company. Now Jitesh can add uh, a lot more on the, that as well. I'm just going to add one thing, Nikhil, um, uh, to what uh, Radhika said. I think just in terms of, um, just for any of the founders listening in, um, broadly, we we do our investments in in two areas. While we're sector agnostic, 60% of our investments happen in B2C, which is basically where you're solving India-specific problems. We have enough, uh, enough chaos uh, back here, and I think it's been made even more interesting post the post uh, post COVID. Uh, that's sixty percent broadly, um, and uh, the remaining forty percent is more B two B, which you know is basically engineering in Bangalore, but for the world. Uh, and we're seeing a huge trend, uh, obviously, happening with the Freshworks and the Postmans of the world uh, as that scales along. So we've consistently, in fact, over the last 10 years, broadly maintained this split. Um, and um, that's just an important additional point for anyone this call to understand uh, on what we look at. We are also heavily thesis-driven, which means we generally don't make an investment if we don't have our research around it, uh, even if that means the research being you know, spurred by uh, something happening at that point. A lot of that is also public. In fact, Radhika has done an excellent work around the tech thesis all on our website um, and for anybody to uh, anybody to view. So just wanted to add that. That's amazing. So essentially what I hear from you, uh, that you're, you invest in less than 0.8% of the pitches that you receive, right? Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness me, founders, <clears throat> make note of this. Um, actually, you're very right. I mean, from my, um, I, I, I've, as a, as a family office, we went through over 4,000 pitches and we, or 4,000, actually, we not just went through, pitches were probably higher. Over last five, six years, we went through about 4,000 companies and we invested in, in, in about, 40 of them, so which translates to about 1%, slightly higher than yours. But of course, you are a, a, a fund and you uh, use other investors, uh, LPs money to invest in, in, in the assets. We were using uh, your own. So, uh, Nikhil, just on that point, if you don't mind, you mentioned LPs. I just wanted to also add one aspect, which personally is very close to me as a founder. At least in Bloom's case, uh, we're fairly homegrown. So like we've it's been started from scratch uh, by uh, by uh, Karthik and Sanjay, who are the two managing partners. In fact, the initial stories about raising their own fund itself are very similar to how a founder raises for their startup because it's pretty much similar, right? Why I feel that's important is because the empathy comes in from that point itself. It, it It's very easy when I was a founder, like it was very easy to look at investors from this pedestal that you're just there because you're there, but the struggle is real on both sides, um, and uh, more so, especially when like we and like the stories are insane. Insane, like um, you know what I've heard where they they pitched like five hundred plus people for their first fund, um, and and so so the, the empathy comes there when we are also trying to uh, evaluate founders and and be empathetic towards that because even now that happens with us when we're raising a fund ten years later as well, um, and and even if you speak to an experienced founder, even if they're raising hundred million, it's still the same process. Uh, so I just that that point is is critical to I think understand as as the ecosystem also evolves. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I, I totally get you because um, I think this is something which, which is absolutely important for founders to recognize that VCs are, are their friends, not their enemies. But uh, this, this gives me a great segue into one of the questions which I've been uh, battling and I thought I was meaning to ask you, Radhika and uh, Jitesh. Uh, should founders really care about the VC brand? I mean, think about it. Money is money, right? I mean, how does it matter? Radhika. I can I can jump in first. Um, I won't uh, forget brand for a minute. I think brand is a very overused, complicated term. Um, where I disagree would be money is not money. Um, so this, this thought actually came to me when you were talking about um, how through that most funds have that like less than 1% kind of uh, funding rate, so to speak. Um, the good the good news is that there is every year a new wave of investors that comes in. So effectively, every every year there is a new wave of capital that comes in. And when you you know these days in the news, almost every there is every day there is a funding announcement. So clearly there is capital in plenty, not just in the West but now also in India. Um, so capital is now very very commoditized. You need to look beyond that and look at who the right partners are. Right? Um, these are people that if you're as a founder in it to build for the long journey, to build something massive, legacy building. Um, it's going to be a 5, 10, 15 year kind of journey. That's how long most of these uh, large startups, even in the West, have been building for. So this is not someone that you're just going to exchange emails with for the next 10 years or maybe see once in a couple of months in a board meeting. This is someone who's going to be as, who should be as invested in your business, who should have as much conviction in the the vision that you're selling uh, and should feel your highs and lows ideally as much as, as you. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you need to look at who can, multiple facets of this. One, who understands you as a founder and your business the best. Um, don't try and, you know, pester funds that don't really have thesis in that area because chances are if they don't have thesis in, the, in that area, they won't feel very strongly for it. As a founder, you're better off going and working with an investor who also believes that in that area in a big way. Second, pick people who have expertise in that area. So if you're like a, a you know, founder in a D2C food brand, try and pick partners, aka investors, who've also kind of experienced that space, either through their own work or startups or through other investments in their portfolio. So they have know-how. They understand what works in that business, what doesn't work in that business, and you can kind of leverage their knowledge. Uh, so, so make mistakes at cheaper cost effectively. Um, and, then, and then the third is really what comes... You know, everything else is vegetation role plays a big a big part as well. Um, pick pick investors who can open doors for you. Uh, pick investors who can give you the right advice and who to uh, what doors to be open. So I, I wouldn't say that it's it's about brand or is is capital capital. I would say pick a partner that you enjoy working with, um, and that'll be good for your business. And especially at early stages, don't get too drawn by that little difference in evaluation or those uh, very very nitpicky terms in your term sheet. Think long term. Think about who will get you to that like one billion, ten billion IPO kind of outcome. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Jitesh. Would you like to add something to this? I, I would, in fact, as uh, been through the fundraise process myself. Um, I think I totally agree with Radhika. I will add one thing though. Uh, often, when someone's going through this, realities are sometimes different because often you don't. It's it's a, it's a classic classic confirmation bias where um, most of the founders will never get to choose. 
um and and that's that's that is the harsh reality so at the same time i would say like despite being on i would being on both sides if you can then if you can have an option of not raising then do that uh because that actually to be honest brings a i mean it it, it bodes well when you're actually going to raise because not every business is a venture fundable business it's it's very easy to look at a funding story and say i'm going to get funded and think of it as like a end case it it works both ways um that's one and and i and i've like what i was saying i've seen that with a dear friend of mine who went out to raise a like a large round but got only one fifth of that towards the end and he sold the company before so if it can happen to someone like him it can happen to anyone who's doing it for the first time um so there are there, there will be times where you just need the money um in that case you don't have a choice but still i think doing some sort of due diligence helps you'd rather uh not scale or not want to scale 10x for the next 6 months than have an investor you can't like uh sit 10 years later have a drink with you know uh sort of a situation so it's tricky in reality i agree with that um because you see the numbers right like 8 out of 2000 3000 um so but but i think the good thing is that the ecosystem is evolving um the sign of a good ecosystem is where uh you know a lot of angels come in a lot of micro vcs are there who will fund on mvp stage who will fund on idea stage uh and that is a good sign of a mature ecosystem uh so any form of exits that happen it's 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 a cycle uh and we see that like i'll be honest like there are some rounds that close on whatsapp in india it's it's it was unheard of before um is this a sign that like that's that's that just breeds innovation on its own right so so i think that's the the two three parts that i mentioned here but i think eventually uh it it comes down to your uh conviction as a founder in terms of what you want to say uh but do like certainly i think having good advice or having people who've been there more than just getting the capital often just helps because they'll just tell you things which sometimes other people will not know and and that also go along that's that's a very good point but while during your conversation i think while during your um, this this thing that you kind of mentioned that all startups are not really vc cases and i think that is that is something which which i would really want to expand i want you to expand what are really vc cases for you what are really startups i mean not every new business is a startup and i think that's something that differentiation that uh, that is something which founders really need to recognize today and i think that is can you can you throw a bit more light on that you or uh, or radhika whosoever wants to go radhika you want to take a first shot so um so i won't get into the difference between startup or business but yeah i'll i'll um add to what jitesh said about not all businesses are vc fundable um a very very small percentage of businesses in the world are actually vc fundable i think what unfortunately happens is um because a little bit of the newness of it because we're so inspired by the valley in many ways um and because of just the the sheer amount of capital involved um in the news you only read about uh vc funded startups you only read about you know xyz has raised 200 million at a 4 billion valuation and things like that um and so it's it's easy to get drawn into that rabbit hole of oh this is the only way my business will succeed and this is what i this is what a successful business looks like which is uh, which is not at all true um you need to have uh, the the two broad principles of humru's of what a vc fundable business looks like is 
um, A, your limited amount of input is able to have output at scale. So a SaaS company or any, any sort of, uh, you know, company built on lines of code is a great example, right? Because a single line of code can actually serve 10 users, 10,000 users, 10 million users. Yes, you keep adding to it to keep improving your product, but your base product will keep serving uh, users at scale. The second is there is some limited element of network effects involved, at least. So um, every new user that you end up getting is slightly cheaper to acquire and slightly cheaper to serve than your previous user was. Got it. So service businesses are a typical example of what would not be very uh, easily refundable because those aren't, um, you're, you're incurring a very certain amount of cost every single time you serve a new customer. Now, of course, we're seeing a lot of service businesses also becoming productified. So tech is making a lot of these businesses uh, easier to scale, easier to serve multiple customers at, at, at much cheaper costs. Um, and so they're now getting VC funded. Um, but we're seeing brilliant businesses being built, bootstrapped, being built on debt, uh, being built on very innovative forms of financing. Now, revenue-based financing is such a, a big model working across the West in India. Um, so I wouldn't, yeah, I would first really consider based on my business model, based on how my growth looks, um, and also what my ambition looks like. Do I want to build a $1 billion, $10 billion business, or do I just want to build a 10 crore business? And neither answer is right or wrong. It's about where your ambition lies. And that needs to align with your investor's ambition as well. So if you're looking to build a 10 crore business, EC funding may not be the best path for you because they're on a very different treadmill altogether. Just adding to uh, Nikhil, to exactly where Radhika left it, um, I think it's important to also understand two things. I'll, I'll rephrase what Radhika said. As a founder, would you want 10% of a $100 million exit or... 1% of a $1 billion exit. The amount is the same. 10 million. Absolutely. Uh, the first one may not be venture fundable. You have complete control of the company, no external people involved. Full freedom uh, might take longer. Um, and the second one will require a very different thing. I'll add, now that is actually connected to another aspect around hyperscaling. What that basically means is you have to now also understand, and I think, Hopefully, it's going to get better. The moment you bring in a venture capital firm in, in the picture, you have to keep in mind why they're investing money. Like Bloom, for example, most funds are 10-year funds. Now, what does that really mean? If I invest in you today, uh, you need to know which, where, when I raise the fund. Uh, my responsibility is not to just give you the money and, and just you know be chill about it. Uh, the real fiduciary responsibility of any fund manager is to return the money back to their investors. And that's over a cycle. Uh, and that is a very important aspect on how we will choose a certain business because we will choose companies who we feel has a higher probability of growing that fast because the faster they grow, the better or the faster probability-wise we can exit, right? Um, it is the truth. It just never gets talked about. <laughs> and and um, it's it's because it's such a long-term game, right? Like at that moment, that's why the numbers are so low from our side uh, and, and for any such fund, because that's why like that those dynamics become important. Uh, and, and that's probably a different session around fundraising strategy totally. But uh, I think that element is, is there and, and the rest, I think Pradika pretty much covered it. 
um and and like for example i'm just sharing what i wish i did when i was a founder five years ago um i never thought of any of these i actually picked up an investor who i mean i could have waited bloom actually was in the consideration and i didn't wait uh, so uh, those things can become uh, uh, can be different so yeah just want to add that but, but that, you know, i could Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, if I could just add to Jitesh, um, it's very interesting. Where as a as a non VC funded company, or as a non investor funded company, whoever the investor might be, you have complete control over the business. It's an interesting conversation I had with a, a founder of a D two C startup who's building just completely bootstrap, um, and she said, "While uh, I have complete control, I own hundred percent equity, and I make all the decisions. It's as important for me to also have a great set of advisors." So for anyone going the route of bootstrap businesses, um, still try and construct a very solid like board, for instance, where you bring in people as advisors who maybe run similar businesses, who a you look up to, and b who can give you very critical feedback in a constructive way also. So um, yes, it's great to have hundred percent control, but then try and like, keep that learning element going as well. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, I always tell my my uh, uh, the people who, who approach me specifically regarding fundraising, or you know, uh, especially the ones you know the dream with me kind of scenarios, where the vision seems like you know it's going to change the world tomorrow, and and typically they come back with a proposition that there's no comparable product which exists. That's when I start looking at. uh advisory board how many advisors they really actually have so that that possibility of enrolling experts actually uh increases that uh that that delta of not just a, being a pipe dream rather than a uh, rather than it actually lends a bit more likelihood of a, a successful outcome for the business Uh, probably uh, by a certain order of magnitude is that what uh, is that what you're alluding to uh yes largely uh, any any deviations or any other thoughts around it they should take that more so that I magnitude mean, no i mean i think you know it's like i tend to think of it a little more philosophically where it's like saying that if you really want to solve that problem you'll find a way um like like i it's a there there's there's something called as a mom test right like where you try to explain things i have a very different version of it where it's it's subconscious like i stay away from home i call my mother every day and i'll do that like till the time she's alive right and she does that to her mother nobody has to teach me this so if you're truly mad about the business and the problem that you're solving eventually it will play out um and and that it answers all these questions so so whether you take an advisory board or this because what will work for one company will not work for the other absolutely like you need you need someone who sells on your behalf you need a tribe like somebody who will when you're not there still talk about your company like think i remember when the first time we spoke i remember mentioning two of my friends startups just because like i truly believe in what they're doing right so i feel when that's happening the the sphere of creativity just starts to take place so you'll start to think of solutions or ways to do things you automatically become more persistent um it's this madness required um and um that will eventually solve like 
Today, there was a merger between one of our portfolio companies, Exotel, and another company, MAO, which is in the contact center space. The story of Exotel is insane. There is 300K of capital 10 years ago, and um, they then built a 10 million ARR business. They got zero investor love in the meanwhile. Zero. Wow. Their next round was last year, which was eight years after their existence. It's unheard of in the venture space. But the founders in between decided, hey, I raised a 300K round. Um, I'm not getting the investor love. I will turn this around because I believe in the problem so much that I'm just not going to leave it. Right? And, and there are enough and more examples. Like It just looks so rosy on the outside again because you're just hearing about the winners. Like, I think it's, it's, there's so much deep inside and, and, um, out there. And we see it like almost every day. I can't even empathize there. So I think ultimately that sort of takes care of itself. Um, and that's it. Like, it's a little philosophical view, but that's, that's like, that's my personal belief. This is really very interesting because, you know, um, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And if you ask my friends, my cousins or whosoever, you know, I didn't have a very, a great, uh, uh, you know, education. I didn't have a, I had pretty decent education, but not really good grades. And uh, the there was this obsession about entrepreneurship. I just didn't want to, probably it started with, I didn't want to work with somebody. I just wanted to work for myself. And uh, probably it started from there and it just kind of, you know, it just becomes a habit. So uh, you've been, we've been talking a bit about the mindset here, you know, and I call it entrepreneurship is is really uh, there is a certain entrepreneurs are by by any stretch of imagination delusional, at least in the, in the beginning. Uh, probably the wisdom comes in after you know you've been put through a school of hard knocks. But what, in your opinion? And, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the extreme side, you know, a moderate philosophical side. What what makes the entrepreneur's mindset different from the others? You know, people, specifically people who would like to live in a comfort of a paycheck. I think, like, so for me, it's generally just curiosity. Like, I think just being curious about why a certain thing is the way it is um, is probably the first step itself. And, and um, that's just like, if I have to look back into uh, the, like some of the founders who I work with or even friends of mine who are, you know, building successful businesses, like for me that that comes first. Um, I think there's a respectful way of doing that as well. It, it can get, um, too much also where it sometimes isn't necessary. But I think I think that comes first because ultimately you're solving problems. And, and um, for, to solve problems, you have to go deep enough. To go deep enough, you have to be curious enough. And, and I think that itself, like, like I'll be honest, like in my three-year journey, I think I learned more about myself. Forget the business I built. I think I just learned more about what works for me as a person, uh, what doesn't, um, and, uh, and things like that. So... I think, I think that for me, if I had to choose one, that would be just too high up there because again, philosophically, that will take care of a lot of the other um, other things. Okay. Um, think, Radhika, please go ahead and add something you would want to add to this. I, I have two. Um, one is slightly more extreme. One is more normal. And the more extreme one is 
um i think the best founders just think of the world as a very very different place or the world that they're trying to create as a very very different place um and, and i'll narrate two very short instances one was um ever since i moved back home whenever something like small gets over at home i'll tell my mom is not a big deal we're just done so it and my mom will get very paranoid by the thought that like what do you mean you were done so like a small box of dahi and i said no that's like that's the purpose of done so what do you mean so products like this change the way we operate on a day to day basis for a generation forget her like 5 years 10 years back even i was not used to that kind of convenience right um on the second was a conversation with uh, with with kartik at bloom uh, one of the founding partners of bloom a while back where we were talking about a certain company and and i like we said you know this like it just won't this it won't you know this industry can't change there won't be adoption we don't think it's a good idea and he said that's the worst idea that's the way that's the worst way to look at a company because our jobs are to help founders change the way things operate so you can't just say this is status quo this is modus operandi and that's why the startup won't work because that is the purpose of a good startup so one is the best founders just think of the world that they're building as completely different from what exists today uh and the second factor is just solid grit to be able to make that change um the ability to say that if i need to stay awake for 48 hours to solve this problem that i'm facing right now i will do it um so i think that combination is just what makes founders a so like no point delusional but also just the most lovely people ever awesome thank you thank you so much i mean these insights are probably uh very important for us as as founders who are trying to raise external capital this is going to help uh keep your questions coming in uh, uh friends so i i'm going to probably go into onto the lighter side of uh, you know the investment what has been the most ridiculous pitch that you've heard in person or read which kind of you know which has stayed with you but it has been absolutely ridiculous i can start um there have been some very interesting pitches like in 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 terms of what they're trying to build uh i won't call them ridiculous because who am i to call them ridiculous but like i found there are some very very interesting you know one of the early companies that i met and i just joined doom or something in the pet dating space so like tinder for pets and i'm not a pet parent so that that uh, of course was lost on me um but i was very fascinated i'd never seen anything like that um you know in a pre covid world as my company trying to build like e darshan or e puja so for those of you not familiar with um in the norms is basically like a, a online version of uh, praying at a temple um so that's a very interesting model uh the 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 funniest pitch and this i maybe drives back to your point of just crazy delusional founders with solid grit was a founder who um, so even in a pre covid world we would do our first meetings with founders on zoom because we do like 10 a week um and after my constantly telling this founder that no we're going to do a zoom call don't come to the office they still showed up to the office and it was i was so glad they did because i absolutely loved what they were building i loved talking to them and realized after they'd left that they'd left like an hdmi cable in our office and eventually after several meetings kind of became friendly with them and suddenly remember that he was a left this like cable of yours in the office and they later told me that uh, yeah we left it on purpose so that just in case you stop responding to us we can swing by uh, and our excuse would be to pick up the cable but then we can like start up another conversation with you guys 
ജേണി സോ ഫാർ so i don't uh, fortunately see as many founder pitches as uh, radhika does but i think i'll i'll keep this on a lighter note i think for me just in general uh, i spend more time around crazy ideas uh, so like the most recent one is a founder wanting to charter a jet just because um, <laughs> and uh, as an example right so i i i deal with more of those ideas um and and there's some like again like another one for example i remember which sounded really funny at first but we executed that immensely well um another one of our founders uh, when covid hit like i remember i was actually in goa mid march when this call was happening where there was a rumor of a lockdown and this founder said hey i need to pivot to online and if lockdown happens i'm basically screwed um it's not a ridiculous idea because none of us you know who who would be traveling so much never thought that lockdown will be like this but in 10 days that company implemented and moved completely online like wow. in, in 10 days wow um and they're a b2c they were b2b to c company right so where they were completely servicing physical uh um uh, like doing that in a in a more um, physical environment so that sounded extremely crazy to me at the point when i was having this conversation because i was hosting uh, like i was in goa for work hosting a set of vcs and in the middle i got this call i'll take a founder call over anything i think after parents uh, so this call was happening and it when i look back i i wouldn't have thought of this like i think the way the conviction the founder had i i was i i actually told him that listen you're crazy uh, this can't happen we made it happen and there are enough of these Uh, it's not of it's not doesn't classify as a funny pitch but it's just enough of these where you just sit back and you're like this is this is insane that's execution uh, on steroids it's 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 insane yeah yeah awesome so awesome. i mean uh, then it just brings me to one uh, last question before i start picking up uh, audience questions here how should the founders reach you radhika i'll start with you you can email me at radhika at bloom.vc i must admit nikhil's last linkedin post uh, spoke of uh, your last guest giving out that email address so i feel a certain amount of pressure to do that <laughs> no i'm kidding um no you should you should just email us we're all uh, uh, most of the bloom team is first name at bloom.vc um we have a we also have a uh, thank you thank you nikhil we also have a pitch form online that we uh, every single startup that applies there um gets reviewed by one of my um brilliant colleagues and uh, it reaches the right place if we're looking to invest you will get an email if we're not looking to invest so we're actually as far as go we build pretty easy to reach great thank you so much for for your email address uh, then of course we already know jitesh's email address but i'm sure yep. my colleague uh, is already done the job but you know you could do better than that you could go through one number dash and yes, you know what absolutely. not not only that dudash will will even add its own layer of uh, 
report around it and it'll it'll you you'll know exactly how easy or difficult this or how this uh, startup is going to perform potentially or likelihood of performance in future so that's awesome so uh, nikhil if you don't Why mind me adding uh, if you remember me adding to the content uh, the contact bit um, often we if you email us directly especially when we don't know you there's a chance of emails getting missed let's be i just want to be realistic about this um is why a pitch form exists so like i've heard enough number of times saying hey if investors don't reply to our emails it's not that we don't want to. um it's just that in the order of things um like there will be layers to when things will happen and uh, is why a pitch form makes more sense so you can always reach out to us one on one but please think of it the reverse way as to why should anyone the same applies to you also when you are let's say when someone reaches out to you why should i spend those 5 minutes reading your email and actioning it um, versus anything else right like it it seems non trivial um is and i want to make sure that this caveat is added um and we try our best to respond to all but there are times where enough number of founders have reached out directly despite us saying that listen please reach out on the pitch form and things like that um and then you know they may have a bad experience and so on which is never the intention um so i just wanted to add this as a as a practical layer uh, to get yeah 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 that's all that that's that gives the perception that uh, you know i mean the investors are difficult to get they are easy to get but at the same time like um like look at the numbers right like i literally i, I can literally do a screenshot of my inbox uh and so can radhika um so always reach out but there are often times where we will take like let's say 24 hours 20 hours to respond and things like that so that's the awesome. other uh, thing i want so i'm going to start with some some of the audience questions and uh, brace yourself they are pretty interesting questions here you're going to spend the next 15 minutes taking their questions so there's one gentleman called krishan shah <clears throat> he says i'm unable to get sufficient traction in my saas startup and also i am a non tech founder with no cto in the company what should i do radhika this question is for you actually i think jitesh is better suited to see runners as company okay jitesh i'll take that i mean honestly i there isn't enough information for me to truly answer this the two things can be completely unrelated uh, you're not having a cto and not getting traction um if i was in this position or were to give an answer assuming uh, krishna krishna you are hearing this is i mean i think the logical question is to understand what are the things that actually is causing the problem so if it's why do you need like firstly you should have a cto if it's a tech if you are running a saas company like you need engineering help um, but again like there's enough no code uh, tools out there uh, if it if it requires an initial website and landing page that can happen on webflow on your own i would also challenge you to see what more you could do there um, so i think it, that's that's broadly where i will say otherwise it's it's tough to uh, specifically point out but one universal thing that works is please speak to your potential customers like please one way of at least understanding why it's not happening is to just speak to customers and i would highly recommend this one book uh, it's called the mom test it's 
for like 99 rupees on linkedin uh, sorry on 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 um, on kindle my bad um it just i think there's a way to speak to uh, potential customers we often just go direct and speak about our product first we don't really understand what their problems are because there might be things that you are building or working on which are actually not a problem um mm. and it's it's a, it's a bias so i think i think if i had to really choose regardless of whether you have a cto or not uh because i don't know what stage you're in in terms of product building i would certainly do at least 10 of those uh as as one starting point and maybe get a better understanding from that yeah so i think that's that basically points in the direction of customer development and i think that's a core component before we starting out on any kind of a business i have no affiliation to this book um i, was I just cannot recommend enough i just cannot recommend it enough um and um, yeah if anybody can't find it on linkedin please email me for that at the very least um and i and i'll send you the link but uh, sorry from kindle um and yeah that's that's one thing i would like to if if i could just double click on what what jitesh also said right? that it, like you can kind of break down the problem into a couple of elements either like he said the uh, the product doesn't seem to be working for the for the person you're selling it to um or you're trying to sell it to the wrong person altogether or the pricing is off um or they're just not able to discover your product so there are a couple of like very uh, you can break this down into sub problems and then we'll evaluate each of these individually so like absolutely talking to your customers is the best way to do that because they can tell you whether whether your pricing doesn't work whether it doesn't solve the demand or whether they just didn't know you existed um and and the latter or the last one is also a very common problem that happens um so so kind of break it down into sub problems and think about it that way um and to jitesh's point yes that you don't need a cto to solve this problem necessarily but when you actually start thinking of fundraising if you do uh team composition is definitely something that gets evaluated not that every startup needs a cto early on or even needs great tech talent early on but if you're building um a software led company having strong having a strong tech team whether they're c suite or not uh, would help in in your fundraising as well absolutely absolutely and that's what dodash essentially does the platform eventually the target platform is going to uh, continuously uh, evaluate you on five dimensions or help you evaluate yourself on five dimensions which are essentially on the team the traction the timing the technology slash product and the tam which is basically the size of the market so the next question comes from uh, a gentleman called shanya sinha a uh, i don't know gentleman or lady i don't i'm i'm sorry uh, the question is around uh, seed funding of ventures started by young or experienced founders what is your outlook on that i think it's inexperienced young or inexperienced so so is age a number is age does age matter to you as a fund we invested okay uh, our one of our first checks gray orange bits college founders till date the best success story from a hardware company in india um our fund three investment pixel 22 year olds i think if not younger building for space and i think like the founders handle boards better than some very experienced founders um so short answer no um the other guy can add this but in fact i feel like we have i think i've seen 
from if I have to check the data, but I think our average age of founders that we've invested in, I think has dropped over the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, if you see a pattern across funds and we're seeing more and more younger, younger and hungrier founders uh, come in. In fact, um, like I keep seeing that over and over uh, happening. In, and and uh, Shana is a lady. She just, she just replied on the chat. Uh, so um, yeah, sorry about that from, uh, from our side. But yeah, I think like we don't really have a prejudice or anything, but I think it's important uh, that you know who you're talking to, what you are looking to build and, and have the delusion as, as we've often mentioned anyone on this call. So, so uh, correct my understanding. So you uh, as a fund have been uh, investing in younger and younger founders. While uh, this is very interesting because recently there was a study which was published by I think Howard or one of the top universities in from the US. And uh, there they had did a, uh, an assessment on I don't know, several recently funded companies and the age Average age of the founders is is mid forties now. This is uh, and more successful companies which are getting investments or attracting investments are are, are uh, much higher. This is quite uh, quite a difference from from what is visible globally. Is yeah, it by design that... or is it is it, uh, is it by design or is it just a pure coincidence? It's not by design. Um, it's not by design for sure. It's not that there is a thesis in, in, around it or anything of that sort. I think a couple of factors. Once we studied that that's, uh, uh, article by Harvard, where they kind of, as you said, evaluated uh, founders in large numbers and the ones that have done well and kind of looked at um, what co-founder relationships did well, what, uh, what the average age was for the best founders. Um, one, I think you can't, uh, you can't zero it in with such granularity. Um, we've seen the best pitches in recent times from founders under, say, 35. And it so happens that we've made those bets. We also have made bets with founders who are, who are older than that, which have also done very well. Um, but I think the difference in, in Harvard study and what we're seeing in India, and this is true, uh, what Jitesh mentioned in trends, is true across uh, funds pretty much in India right now. Um, there is also a strong cultural element involved. Um, I think in the US, just small things like college debt is, is so high, right? So you can't take that risk where you're not making steady income, where you don't know what your, um, where financial security lies for you right after college, which is where we're seeing a lot of founders uh, deep into their entrepreneurial journeys in India. Um, so that's just one, one such example. There are many such reasons that make that age a little bit different in India and, and uh, in the West. Um, but yeah, we're seeing significantly younger founders. Um, I I don't think being young or inexperienced in any way will damage your, uh, uh, you know, so many of the founders that we've invested in, I think majority of them are first-time founders. So in terms of being founders, they're inexperienced. Um, I think the, the ways to counter for that are build a strong team um, build a team that you're comfortable with, get the right partners, and really, really study the space incredibly well. The two examples that Jitesh mentioned, uh, both Grey Orange and Pixel, are companies, and many other founders have invested in very early on, are founders who really, really understood the space very well and are extremely passionate about what they're building. 
the founders at Pixel are incredibly passionate about space tech and, and, and what they're building for the country. So I think that kind of really helps counterbalance any element of age and, and um, experience or lack. Thank you for this. Thank you, Radhika. Um, one question, which actually there's a combination of um, questions from uh, two or three people, which I see that uh, most of the venture capital funds uh, write that they invest in early stage startups. And when uh, apparently uh, the experiences, when, they, when people reach out to them, they say, oh, go ahead, uh, you know, uh, get an angel investments, uh, get some angels in, and then we're gonna start having a look at you, or probably they don't even have an MVP or a hypothesis. So the question people are asking is, why do you then call yourself early stage then? And I think this is very important for people to recognize what early stage essentially means, uh, because early stages doesn't mean that I just had a brilliant idea in my mind and I sketched out two, uh, or two to five uh, slide sheets on a presentation. Uh, I prepared a presentation file, but please go ahead and elaborate that. Um, I can I can start and would love for Jitesh to add. So there are uh, so there are really only two types of investment in bucket them. There's early and there's growth, um, and both have several stages to it. So as you said, early stage investing can be raising money from you know your family and friends when you've just gotten an idea, just quit your job to raising from external angels, people who are experts in the field, um, people who have built companies before, et cetera, who uh, even, even with institutional funds, you have funds who will make uh, 200K bets, you have funds who will make 500K bets, $2 million bets, even $5 million bets, who all call themselves early stage investing. Um, your series A, your series B is really where the nozzle starts turning away from early more towards growth. And similarly, growth investing can be anything from 10 million to a uh, billion dollars or more. Um, so it's not that early stage investing means that, you know, like you said, we'll come in the moment you have the idea or the moment you have a product that you're raising for. Uh, even early stage investing has stages. So the best way to know uh, when a fund comes in, most VC funds will have in their website um, some description around what stage they come in at. So it could be, when you've got your minimum viable product, your MVP, it could be when you are reaching PMS, it could be when you're raising a much larger round to start your group journey. Um, so that would be the best way to understand where we come in. But yes, I mean, uh, contrary to popular belief, we're all early stage investors, from all the way from family and friends to a, a series A investor. So I think uh, uh, that's, that's very valid, uh, uh, Radhika. Obviously, in, in most of the institutional investors will come in when uh, product market fit has been clearly established, which is means which which demonstrates a clear path to revenue or clear path to profitability, if there's anything like that, but uh, at least a clear path to revenue. So uh, uh, there is... Just to add, if you don't mind, just to yeah. add... Um, I think most VCs at least mention, as Radhika said, very clearly, like I, I remember Mikhail just sent a link about our website where we clearly state broadly, like even down to like revenue numbers uh, of what broad revenue we would like to see. Uh, the challenge is like, it works both ways, right? Like it's not, it's not on me to question the founder saying, hey, you haven't read it. Um, but often that could be the case. 
uh, but we could be exceptions as well. There are often, broadly, I completely agree. Uh, I will just have one point there, and I see I saw a pattern around questions around MVP, pre-product, and things like that. Uh, so I just want to add that to this mix as well. Uh, Bloom doesn't do MVP or pre-seed investments by default. Uh, it's very, 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 very rare uh, that we take them. That's clearly visible in our investment criteria. Um, at the same time, there are many of many, many people now, at least in India, early who do that. Um, Antler is a great example. Antler just launched their founders cohort. They literally come in, I would say, minus one stage, not even zero, uh, where you, you may not even have your co-founder in place. So uh, Kishan, who asked, I think he could be a good candidate there. Uh, I'm also happy to refer. Um, there are enough and more pre-seed investors coming in uh, actively in the ecosystem who do exactly this. So, um, and, it, and they're actually, we work with them. So we will work with Antler. We will work with this first check. Uh, even we have a founders fund who does uh, sm small models of investments, um, but but not as not as uh, actively. Um, and and that ultimately is a sign of a good ecosystem. Um, and and that's how it should be uh, uh, moving forward as well. Got it. So there's one very interesting question. Thanks, uh, thanks for the uh, elaboration. First, there's one very interesting question which is coming up, and I think I could already uh, answer that, but I would let you do. Is that do you invest in startups outside of India uh, as well? Are there any valuation criteria or limitations? I think there is obviously being an Indian fund, there are some uh, restrictions in terms of uh, because you're regulated by SEBI Securities and Exchange Board of India. So there are certain restrictions, but I'll let you uh, complete that. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll what take are the that. Restrictions? How much, do, you, do you invest in, in startups outside of India or not? So, so we need an India angle somewhere. Founder. Um, founder base in India selling abroad all bases in India selling in India, mm -hmm. um, which means very tough to take up a founder in Finland or Africa solving for a local problem where we have no expertise. The reality is that for us to maximize uh, the probability of returns, we will only do things which we feel we can actually contribute in the growth. For example, Bloom does not do D2C brands, not because we can't, but because there's no one on the team who has the expertise and we don't want to raise our hands and say, okay, I'll, I'll fund the next Bira. Uh, we may do it in three years, but not at the point at the moment. Right. So, so to answer this, we, there's a heavy limit, by the way, 25% from what I remember. Um, and, um, and often what happens is uh, that's the total fund size, obviously, but we often lever uh large amount of money as follow-on investment capital. So 25% uh, of a $100 million fund looks like 25 million, but in reality, it's not because like in a, in a $100 million fund, we'll do only 25 checks, for example, and leave 70, like 80 roughly because it's management fees um, for follow-on investments. So we will, we have done, in fact, a lot of SaaS companies, for example, are set up as Singapore entities and India entities, but there is some Indian connection. They're either having bases in India um, or have some sort of linkage, which become important for us because that's our strong suit. Right. 
Radhika, anything to add? Radhika, uh, this uh, I'm just kind of trying to uh, go through as many. Yeah, we're also out of time, so that's okay. We're just uh, slightly over time. Uh, one question which is very very interesting from Rahul P. What is better, having one investor for 20% equity or 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 10 investors for 20% equity? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't get 10 investors. That's a bad idea. That said, um, there is an answer that's that's in between. Um, one investor is great. If you like the investor, if they understand the space, if you think they'll add value, um, that, that's great. There is also a lot of uh, merit in multi-party rounds. So multi-party round is basically where you have uh, more than one VC. Um, I wouldn't dream of getting like 10 different people on my cap table. That's crazy. You will never get anything voted in. Um, but but to have two or even three parties come into your round gives you a very interesting angle there because A, you're able to leverage expertise from um, that many different uh, people. Um, you have that many different sources of capital when you're raising a follow-on round. Um, and uh, the hope that they keep trying to one-up each other and helping you so you will get more helping hands than normal. Um, so, so I think having a, a round split across two people is very powerful. Uh, but I wouldn't go very much beyond that. If you have interest from one doing 20%, you can easily bring one more. That's true. <laughs> like, Absolutely. I don't know a situation where this will not happen. I think there, uh, is, there is another dimension to it, uh, Jitesh. I think the stage of the company is very, very important to recognize. You know, when we are looking at a very, very early stage, we're pre-seed kind of a scenario in where you're not doing a price round probably it doesn't really matter because you could consolidate a lot of investors into a pool and then... Then, uh, then Nikhil, 10 smart operators are far better then, than one VC. Exactly, exactly. Right? So, so I think you need to be very cognizant of what stage you are in before you embark upon any such uh, journey. Of course, you know, a lot of investors are not likely to participate uh, all in one single entity because they also need to manage their risks so you know we'll probably have one or two one lead investor and then uh, you know supporting investors so this this very interesting question and i think uh, amit kumar is asking when should we start esops what is a parameter of cac oh these are pretty simple when should you start esop I think as early as you can, you should ideally start giving ESOPs uh, very, very early on to your, to your best hires. Absolutely. I think I, I personally recommend uh, that, uh, you know, have your virtual stock option plan written out probably at the time of incorporation itself. Um, that would be, uh, of course, you can start allotting those uh, ESOPs as and when your people start coming in. But that uh, that clearly shows that you're you're preparing well for the future already. Uh, Jitesh, would you like to add something to this? Your best hires will leave if you don't give them uh, ownership. Very simple. Like I think it's a it's a mission you come on, um, and uh, you need you need an army. So and the, that's the only way. Completely agreed. Right. Uh, then, of course, uh, I have one little question for you, Jitesh, and that is about the mom test. I'm not sure how many people are going to read this book, uh, even after your very strong uh, 
advocacy towards going ahead and doing that. If you were to take a gist out of this, you know, or make it dumb it down for in in a paragraph for for our listeners, our audience, uh, that would be great, and that would essentially, you know, we'll signal towards close of our session because a lot of uh, Germany is playing England right now. So oh yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I I now I know why my WhatsApp is also uh, exploding. Um, so I'll I'll. I'll summarize it in one paragraph. I'll do you one better, where uh, the book itself has a summary at the end of it. I'm going to put screenshots, and we can maybe put it up on Dudash um, mm. for wider viewing as well. Uh, but to summarize it, the idea is very simple. It just focuses broadly on customer conversations or how you're trying to understand if you're speaking to somebody about a problem. Uh, it starts essentially from identifying and basically what you need to do is whenever you're talking to a stranger ideally or even your friend uh try and understand their frustrations and what they're going through uh as as founders we are too emotionally invested in our idea so it's very easy for you to ask hey do you face a problem in fundraising oh great here's judash you don't even ask them if there is actually a problem they will just be nice to you because they're your friend and say yes i do have a problem so so essentially the book is about that that the real understanding is not about your product at all that comes secondary it's about the problem you solve absolutely and and what you are actually doing should ideally never be part of the conversation absolutely because because ultimately people are driven by it's actually a great psychology lesson um overall as well because um then when you start to dig deeper and hence become curious you'll get very interesting answers one thing i'll so that's that's the broad gist of this uh when you're approaching uh questions i will leave one specific nugget which stuck with me um which i never looked at it from this lenses often when you're speaking to a potential user just to understand their problem we often you know get marred by compliments or just good things because the other person wants to look good whether this is worth the time or not often i feel the real test when somebody says they have a problem is when you ask back hey have you done something about it most of the problems are just our complaints we don't do anything about it a big part of your monetization gets solved by the initial user who says dude i have tried 10 things nothing has worked uh i would spend all my time to try and help you those are also by the way your best early users absolutely. they are people who are your evangelists absolutely. absolutely and and i started to observe this even when i am now listening to founders or when i was doing this otherwise i would have not done this normally so if i had to summarize i think that would be it but i'll separately share uh these screenshots of founders are a great job on that um uh, for the for the community as well thank you so much thank you so much jitesh and uh, before i going to let you go one last question to radhika and this is uh, a question which is i think which is also pretty close to my heart because i see, i think a lot about food security and food security somewhere you know leads you into agri tech there's this question from anup ganguly who says that uh, 
Agritech is going to be a sunrise sector. Uh, I, I mean, uh, that's what his, his statement, I don't know. But uh, is Bloom's thesis anywhere? Is it part of Bloom's thesis? Will Bloom yeah. invest in Agritech? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've made a couple of very interesting bets in, uh, in Agritech. Jaikasan being one of the more recent ones that's also doing very well. Um, there are, uh, and, and, and in multiple ways, right, there are elements of agri-tech that intersect with fintech because there's so much work being done around pharma, credit, uh, so on and so forth. There are elements of agri-tech that involve, that involve net warehousing and um, uh, more, more deep tech products around just uh, non-GMO products, fertilization, etc. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Agri-tech is, is very, very big in home thesis. We made a couple of bets in the space. It's a space we very actively chat. So if you're building something in that space, we'd love to chat. Absolutely. And, and I agree. So uh, it's a sector that's going to do very, very well in India. But we're seeing A, so much of the population involved in agriculture. Uh, B, so much of our agriculture, agricultural production happens in uh, within the country. Uh, and C, seeing so much tech adoption happen slowly in the sector. So there's really scope for more adoption, more to be built out there. And I think then this is one statement which I would like to really make for, for uh, people who are joining us from Africa. Uh, keep a close watch on the type of startups which are emerging in India on the agri- in the agri-tech space, specifically because uh, a lot of it, at least, you know, the environment and the difficulty and the problem standpoint, uh, the situations can be almost not really one-on-one, but nearly the same. And at least that's a good learning point. We used to see that um, when I used to do my business actively in in, uh, in, in technology space, I recall we used to use India as a crucible for testing out for what could potentially work in Africa as well. And anything which worked in India pretty much worked uh, with obviously, you know, certain adaptations, homologation, as we call it in automotive, uh, which would work in, in the US, uh, sorry, in Africa, I'm sorry. That's yeah. true, even within India and certain states, you see certain states with slightly higher literacy rates, slightly higher tech adoption, especially in the South, will always um, be a little bit ahead of the curve than certain other states in the North. So actually, you'll see a similar pattern that the, the Northern states should be uh, aware of what's happening in the southern states in IG. So uh, before I, I think there's one question which I would really like to take uh, was is is regarding the product market fit, and I think this gentleman is asking Jasaro. He's asking that regarding the point you made about PMF. What are the kind of metrics do you look for post PMF? Um, yeah. Uh, I, I have my view on my own personal view on it, but again, uh, uh, happy to hear from your standpoint. Yeah, I can uh, take a stab at it. Would love for the two of you to add to that. Um, three broad metrics, uh, and again, I look more at consumer companies, so this is like got a consumer bias to it. Uh, one, outside of your early adopters who you personally know, so your friends who are adopting the product, not including them, uh, for your other adopters, what is retention looking like? Now, it's hard to give specific, very specific numbers because these depend on industry benchmarks, right? Like retention cohorts for edtech look very different than retention cohorts for, say, a cosmetics company. So look at your industry's benchmarks and broadly, um, is your A, retention moving steadily to and then above your industry benchmark? 
Second is your LTV to CAC ratio looking significantly better or in, in, in simpler terms, are you, um, uh, are you able to derive more and more value from the same customer by spending the same or are you able to spend less money to get the same customer? Um, and third, uh, what is your what does your NPS look like? What are consumers saying about your product? Um, so is your NPS increasing again to industry benchmarks? So that would be the, the three metrics that uh, would be a good place to start tracking. You know. I'll just add to that, Nikhil. Uh, Radhika has pretty much covered it. But just two other things that at least I feel I think product market PMF achieving PMF is also a bit while it's about the metrics. I think sometimes you just feel it. You just know when you're in that cycle day in, day out. Um, what I've generally tried to equate it as is that another way of saying about the LTV CAC ratio is when people start to sell for you, you start to get more and more referrals. You just all of a sudden start to get more and more testimonials. I'm talking, let's say, more on the B2B side. Um, and, and you just you're just seeing that happen far, like you can observe and say, hey, six months ago, I was putting in the same effort or around the same effort and I had 10 leads. Now I have 50. Uh, my closure ratios have increased. Um, average ticket size increased. Clearly something is working. And, and that, that, that it's, it's, it's a fancy VC term, but flywheel is what we generally call it as. Um, we, as you know, do a lot of these terms um, just for the sake of it sometimes. But um, I think that's that's another thing I'd like to add into, into PMF. I'll rather cover the more quantitative ones. I just thought I'll cover the quantitative ones. No, I think that's that's great. I think with that, we would like to bring an end to, your, to this session. We're already about 18 minutes over. Uh, and I don't know, it's, it's getting late for you in the night as well. So thank you so much, Radhika. Thank you so much, Jitesh, for taking the time out and speaking to us and educating our community members and uh, hope people will reach out to you with their ideas and uh, maybe something interesting comes out of this process. Absolutely. Thank you for having us uh, and appreciate any of you who stayed on um, as well. Um, towards the end, whatever we couldn't answer, uh, you can add it through uh, the Dudash team or to us. We're Happy to uh, happy to help out. Thanks, thanks a lot, Nikhil. Thanks, thanks, Nikhil, to for even organizing this. And thank you, Radhika, for uh, also taking the time out. Uh, appreciate that. Thank you, everybody. Fundraising is an event, but what happens before and after that? Qualitative investor relations are the basis for future success. Visit dudash.com to learn more. And for more episodes, subscribe to our channel.